Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 7, And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels, waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon who was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced With death, for this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he only has a short time. Jesus said, John 8, 44, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie... He speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus also said in John 12, 31, Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. By the way, that indicates that the ruler of this world was not yet cast out at the time Jesus said that. Just keep that in mind. John 16:11 Jesus said the ruler of this world has been judged and it is clear from the words of Jesus and the scriptures that we're not talking about an abstract characterization we're not considering a personification of evil satan is a demonstrable demon an actual being with literal legions of corrupt cohorts He is called, in verse 9, the great dragon, the serpent of old, the devil, and Satan who deceives the whole world. And we see this old snake hissing out his lies from very early on. In fact, let's look at that, Genesis chapter 3. Turn in your Bibles back to Genesis 3. It's right before Exodus. And typically, right after the table of contents. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you shall die. And I've shared this before. Eve added the touch it part. You know, she took it a a step further, a a little more fear there. God didn't say they couldn't touch it. He just said, don't eat it. The serpent said to the woman, lie number one, you surely will not die. Well, is Eve with us today? Eve surely died. Verse 5, For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. And lie number 2, you will be like God, knowing good from evil. You might say, well, Rick, I, I thought they did know good from evil. I thought their eyes were open to these things. Yes, but they would not be like God. Oh, sure, their eyes were open. They were able to see and understand and know the difference between good and evil. But only God has the nature and the character to navigate these things with perfect righteousness. You are not like God knowing good from evil. We are not like God knowing good from evil. We know good from evil. We see these things, but we are deceived into evil so easily. So no, we are not like God. The devil is a liar. And Satan is a murderer, and he is a thief. 
John 10.10, Jesus said, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That verse alone, I don't know why that doesn't turn the entire world to Jesus. When given the option, the thief who would steal from you, kill you, and destroy you, or Jesus Christ who would give you the abundant life. How is there even a comparison? How is there even a choice there when you know what Jesus wants to do versus what the devil would do? But part of it comes back to not really buying that there's a devil. Or if there is, he can't be all bad. Oh no, he's all bad. Devil. Diabolos in the Greek. It means false accuser. Or Satan, Satanas, also in the Greek, which means adversary. Now, let's, let's look back over the scriptures. Let's, let's track a little bit, at least, of what we know of the devil, of Satan, of the false accuser, the adversary. We hear his name for the first time in the Old Testament. That is chronologically, I believe, and that's in the book of Job. Job, which probably was written, perhaps even before Genesis, around the time of Abraham. And so I would say that's where we first have indication or hear about the devil. Job chapter 1 verse 6 says, There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Why, is is, is Satan a son of God? Well, the sons of God are the bene Elohim. In the Hebrew, bene Elohim, and it speaks of angels. So, in that way, yes, Satan is, was among the angels. We'll see that in a bit here. There came a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. So, immediately we know two things about the devil. Number one, that he is connected to, or at least among, the Bene Elohim. Angels. And that he has... Number two, an earthly domain. He has come from, even at that point, strolling around the earth. Now, this is repeated in Job chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, when the devil, when Satan comes back before the Lord, and once again, he's among the angels, and when he comes before the Lord, he comes after having roamed upon the earth. Now, the next time we hear him named in the Hebrew Scriptures is also instructive, bearing in mind... Revelation 12. First Chronicles 21 verse 1 says, Then Satan stood up against Israel. Satan stood up against Israel. It goes on and says he moved David to number Israel. And there's a whole teaching there I won't get into. But he stood up against Israel. This is what he does. This is part of what he's done from the beginning. And as we talked about Wednesday night, the only thing that makes any sense out of the anti-Semitism that has raged through history is the devil. Is an actual Satan. It does not make sense that a people that are 0.02% of the entire population of earth A people who have done very little but give good things to the planet medicinally and in terms of technology and the arts and education and science and medicine. What the Jewish people have done for the planet is remarkable and should be lauded. But instead they are hated. Why? Because the devil stood up against Israel. He spoke in that verse to David's pride, but for the purpose of wreaking havoc among the Jewish people. In Revelation 12, Israel is the woman, if you're looking back at verse 1, who the dragon wants to devour. Israel's the woman. The woman who is there appearing in heaven, clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. This speaks of Israel. And the devil would destroy Israel as we see throughout chapter 12. In fact, Israel is the arch enemy. The devil goes after Israel and goes after Israel hard. And we'll see that more on Wednesday night. But he embarked on his historic anti-Semitic campaigns very early on. The last time that he's named in the Hebrew scriptures comes after the Jewish exiles return from Babylon. They returned in about 535 or so, right around there, B.C., coming back after their captivity. 
And Zechariah the prophet is among them, and he sees a vision. And in the vision he sees, Zechariah chapter 3 verse 1, Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. In the Hebrew, by the way, Satan and accuse are the same word. Even in that verse, it should read or could read Satan standing at his right hand to Satan him. See, because that's what he does. Somebody take a message for me there. I hear a text going off. Either that or someone's got something weird going on. So Satan and accuse are the same word, that the false accuser, the adversary. And Zechariah chapter 3, verse 2, so Zechariah sees this vision and he sees Satan standing by Joshua the high priest, standing there to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, Zechariah chapter 3, verse 2, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Interesting. A brand plucked from the fire. Speaking not just of Joshua the high priest, but of all Israel who God has plucked from the fire time and time again. From the fires of Babylon, the fires previous to that of Assyria, the fires of Rome, the fires of Auschwitz and Treblinka. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? In other words... Are my people not still here in Jerusalem, living, existing? Hey, Satan is mighty, but God is almighty. Satan is powerful, but God is all-powerful. Satan knows some stuff, but God is all-knowing. Don't forget that. Satan may be present, but God is omnipresent. So there are limitations to this adversary that are not limitations to God our Father and Jesus His Son. And that's good to remember. Because in our world, history tries to teach us, people try to teach us, culture tries to point out a yin-yang perspective. You know, a, a one set against the other. It's Eastern mysticism, and that is a dark side versus a light side and a balance to the force. And that's the world view. That's the tendency people have to think you've got God on one hand and Satan on the other, and they're duking it out... And hopefully God's going to win. And that is so unbiblical. So far off from the truth. Don't be deceived. The only power the devil has in your life is what you give him. He can have no power over you if you are in Christ except the power that you give him to cause fear or to unnerve you or to bring anxiety. If you allow him to, he'll use it. But you don't have to. Now, we know from Revelation 12.4 that Satan comes along and inspires Herod to kill all the male children to and under in the region, a 12-mile sweep of slaughter around Bethlehem. But the first time he appears by name in the New Testament is Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. Note this, verse 3, and the tempter came. Okay, that's instructive right there. We learn that he likes to wait to attack until we are weak and isolated. When you're out of fellowship, when you're thinking you can make it on your own, when you're standing by yourself, oh man, you're easy prey. And when you're weakened, spiritually, physically, emotionally, you know, on on the lighter note, you all get this. Cheryl and I realized years ago, back when we were first married, our our first year of marriage, Saturdays, if there was going to be a day we had a fight, it was Saturday. Saturday was just fight day. And after about the third or fourth Saturday of fight day, he's like, why is it every Saturday is fight day? And at first I'm thinking it's because that's the first day of the week that we're together the whole day. So this is not good. (laughs) You know why Saturday was fight day? We had pancakes and syrup every Saturday morning and we were sugar crashing. I don't like anybody when I'm sugar crashing. Weakness. When we're weak, we can be physically weak, we can be emotionally weak, having been battered about all week long. We can be spiritually weak because we are not in the Word, we are not in fellowship. You put that together with isolation, and the devil thinks, good time to attack. 
This is when I can undermine. This is when I can get in there. Now, he came up against Jesus, his bad, because Jesus just quoted Scripture and was awesome, as Jesus is. But my friends, he comes along and he tries to attack when we are at our weakest and when we are standing all alone. In the New Testament letters, he is further referred to by Paul, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, as the prince of the power of the air. And that doesn't mean he's an airhead. What that means is that he has domain from the atmosphere down. Prince of the power of the air. This is this atmospheric region in which we live is his domain. It indicates his presence in the earthly realm. And... Paul says the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, which tells us something else about Satan. And that is he increases his influence in disobedience and rebellion. Which may seem obvious, but think about it. What I'm saying is his influence becomes stronger among those who refuse to yield to others. You may be an employee and you just don't like the boss. But he or she is asking you to do certain things and I'm just not going to do it. I'm just not going to do it. You're opening a door. Because in an attitude of rebellion for children, in an attitude of disobedience, you're opening the door because he is the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That's what he does. Paul, by contrast, calls for Christ-like attitudes of love and forgiveness one for another. 2 Corinthians 2.11, So that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. See, Paul's on to this. He understands this, that when I am acting in rebellion or disobedience or sin, when I'm acting in darkness, when I'm being unloving, when I refuse to forgive, I'm kicking open the door for the enemy. I'm making it possible for Satan to do his work in my life and against me. And Paul says, don't be ignorant of his schemes. Which is part of the reason I'm thankful for what we're talking about this morning. That we wouldn't be a people who are ignorant that there is an enemy who's working 24-7 to undermine faith. And to destroy belief. When I act in disobedience again, when I act in rebellion, it gives Satan an advantage over me or over others. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, Paul said, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And that's the rest of the verse, but stop and think about that. He has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, which is to say blindness is the direct result of unbelief. Where there's doubt... Where there's unbelief, the veil comes down. And that verse right there is the best explanation I know for the bizarre inconsistencies of human values and ethics and even law. The strangeness of the politicians and what we see taking place in the seats of power. We, we rub our heads and we think, how can they be? Have you ever said this? How can they be so blind? Unbelief. Unbelief is the reason. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 3, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Keep that one in mind. 2 Corinthians 11.3. In fact, I want to read it again. Listen closely. I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness... Your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And I'm going to come back to that in a few minutes. But the devil knows well how to handle the tool of complication. He functions well in busyness, in confusion, where random events are happening and and falling all around you. This week has been one of those weeks for me, to be honest. It's been difficult to find two hours in a row to sit down and study. Cheryl's been sick. She's had the flu all week. She's feeling better. But she's literally been in bed for a week straight. I'm not a good Mr. Mom. I don't want to be Mr. Mom. I didn't sign up to be Mr. Mom. 
And I've told her, if she departs this world before me, I will hold it against her for all eternity. <laughs> but I've just, I've just had to take the busyness and do the thing and get the kids where they have to be, which is everywhere. They're running around to and fro, picking up, dropping off, making sure people are fed, making sure things are taken care of. You know, all the way through last night having to run over to Anacortes to pick up a prescription late and come back. And just, I mean, it's just been nutty. And in the meantime, okay, <laughs> Revelation 12 or so, see, and there was war in heaven. Yeah, I get that. And, you know, trying to, trying to get this stuff down. And, and when it gets complicated, man, that's a tool of the enemy. What's really funny is through this week, knowing that I was going to talk about the devil, I've been praying, Lord, protect me. You know, keep me, keep me at least safe from the enemy so that I can teach this message on Sunday. (laughs) And it wasn't literally until last night when I realized that the tool he was using against me all week long was complication. Just keep him busy. And maybe he'll be too distracted to talk about what he's supposed to talk about. Well, instead, I'm telling you what he did. (laughs) His greatest edge, my friends, is the devil knows what he's doing. He knew what he was doing with Eve. He continues to try to complicate through his craftiness and confuse us. And again, Paul says, I don't want your minds to be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Do you realize following Jesus is easy? This is not hard. It is not rocket science. You don't have to know even the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, although it will build and grow and help you, but it's not about cramming your head full of knowledge, and it's not about being involved in every ministry under the sun. Simplicity. Purity. Devotion to Jesus. And when you find your life running out of control, that's where you need to stop and return to simplicity. There are times I've talked to people who have come to the bridge for the first time and they start to describe the ministries and what they've been involved with in previous churches and how exhausted they are. And and what I like to say is, hey, just come rest for a while. Just come and be here. Don't sign up for something. Don't get involved in anything. Just, just, just be in the presence of Jesus. Simplicity and purity. Such a good thing. But Satan is a long-haul pernicious pro. He knows what he's doing. He complicates lives. And, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end will be according to their deeds. Peter says, 1 Peter 5, 8, Be sober. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He doesn't say he is a roaring lion. In fact, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. But he's like a roaring lion. He purports to be one who will attack. He wants to growl and roar. And and again, if you haven't given him domain of your life, the worst he can do is growl in the jungle. Try to terrorize. Try to instill fear with his rumbling growls. John says in 1 John 5.19, We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of God. Of the evil one. So, my friends, don't be upset when the world doesn't look the way you want it to look. When things aren't going the way that you would hope they would go, or when your country doesn't look like you want your country to look, or the world is not functioning the way the world should function. Why must it be this way? How long, O oh Lord, we say and we forget that the whole world lies in the power of the devil. It's a wonder we have beautiful mornings like this one at all. It's remarkable that we have love relationships and care for each other at all when we live in a world system that is dominated by the devil. So just be aware of that. We're sober, so we don't let down. We keep the guard always up so the accuser can't get in because, you know, the accuser never does let up. Ephesians 4.27, Paul says, do not give the devil an opportunity. Ephesians 6.11, put on the full armor of God so you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. 
And at first we say, yes, yeah, fight back, be tough, armor up, get ready, stay sober, keep alert. And after a while you go, can I just put my pajamas on and go to bed? (laughs) Because it sounds a little exhausting, doesn't it? Be alert. Be careful. Be sober. He's he's prowling. You know, it would be exhausting if you tried to do it without the armor of God. The armor of God is not a heavy thing. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 14, Stand firm therefore, having girded your loins with truth. Just be in the truth. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Just, just do what you know to be right. Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Jesus is peace. It's good news. Share Him. In addition to all, take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. The shield of faith. Just trust God. And He will extinguish those arrows as they come at you. And those are all defensive implements with the exception of the sword, the word of truth, which is our only offensive, and prayer. Prayer takes us on the offensive as well. So we have the sword of truth and we have prayer, as Paul describes. Everything else, just, just put it on, man. Trust the Lord. Stand there and be protected. What kind of battle plan is that? It's the same battle plan that God told Moses to use when the children of Israel were backed up against the Red Sea. Listen to this, a marvelous verse. Exodus 14, 13, Moses calls out, Do not fear, stand by, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The ones they saw that day, the entire army of Egypt, yeah, they wouldn't be seen again. They'd all be drowned in the Red Sea. Listen again to what Moses said. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord. Stand by, standing by. What do I do? Stand by, standing by. You're not the fighter. You're not the one going into battle. You're not the one who has to go head to head with the enemy. God will do that. You stand by. Do you realize we even see this truth at the end of the revelation? I'll I'll give you a little preview. Jesus comes riding back and we come with Him riding back on white horses, ready, we're charging, we're whooping it up, we're hollering, we're behind Jesus, here He goes, here we come, the armies in heaven, the great host following after Jesus, we arrive on earth and the battle's over. (laughs) Foolish is the Christian who says, I kind of want to hang around for the tribulation, you know? Fight it out. I want to be one of those trib saints. You're going to be a headless wonder. (laughs) Let me tell you, when we think that we have what it takes to fight the enemy, we think too highly of ourselves. Stand by. Stand armor up. Stay alert. Fix your eyes on Jesus and stand by. See the salvation of the Lord. It's His salvation and He will do it. And good news, the devil's going to be thrown down. He is going to be thrown down. Wait a minute, what do you mean he's going to be thrown down? I thought he was thrown down. Well, let's think about this. In American slang, a throwdown can be, and I actually looked this up, I, I do this. A throwdown can be a fast food burger binge. Gonna go to McDonald's and throw down. <laughs> Whatever. It can be a, a rap or a breakdown battle. That, we do this oftentimes, you know, during staff meetings. It can be a wrestling match, a brawl, or a fist fight. And that's the context that we're seeing it in. It can mean a few other things as well, but primarily, most think of a throwdown as an all out brawl. The opposite of that would be a down throw, which is a soft, fluffy blanket, but that doesn't have anything to do with what we're talking about. A throwdown! Revelation 12 foretells this epic heavenly battle which takes place and results in a throwdown. Look at verse 7. And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. 
and the dragon and his angels waged war. While there are myriads and myriads of angels we've already seen in the Revelation, Michael is the only one of two ever named in the Bible. With the exception of Yeshua, the exception of Jesus, who comes as the angel of the Lord in the Hebrew Scriptures, as the messenger of God at that point. But there's Michael and there's Gabriel. Gabriel serves functions as Israel's messenger. He brings the prophecies to Daniel. He brings the message to Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, to Joseph, to Mary at the birth of Jesus. Gabriel brings good news for Israel. That's kind of his role, Israel's messenger. Michael is Israel's protector. And both of these angels we can see in relation to the people Israel. And by the way, Michael is the only one in all the Bible who is a named archangel. We know from Jude 9, Michael the archangel disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses and did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. That's amazing restraint. (laughs) I can just see the scene. Michael the archangel and Satan the adversary nose to nose in this heated argument about the body of Moses. What is that about? Go listen to the Jude study. You'll find out. So they're they're arguing over the body of Moses. They're they're toe-to-toe, nose-to-nose, and Satan's just being a jerk. Michael's the archangel. Right there. Michael, just take him down. Punch him in the face. But thankfully that morning, Michael had not had pancakes and syrup. (laughs) Michael says, the Lord rebuke you. Michael knows his place. Michael shows remarkable restraint. But now, here, Revelation 12, we see all-out war between the archangel Michael and, and his angels and the devil and his angels. By the way, as Michael is the only named archangel, kind of got me wondering if Michael's is the voice we're going to hear. You know, when it all happens, following the shout of the Lord, when the church is called up, come up here, he shouts, and up we go. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel. I wonder if that's Michael. And the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. So stand by. Stand by, watch the salvation of God that is about to take place. I wonder also, what will the the archangel, if it is Michael or whichever archangel, what is he going to shout? We already have a hint from Revelation 4, verses 1 and 2, that Jesus is going to say, come up here and up we go. But what does the archangel shout? I think it's going to be something along the lines of, yes! (laughs) Or, woohoo! That'd be a good one. Get him, Lord! I don't know. But he's going to shout and we're going to go up. But that's the caught up. This is the throw down. There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels waged war. And note this, they were not strong enough. That's more good news. They were not strong enough. They is Satan and his demonic horde, and they were not strong enough. You want to know what Satan is not strong enough to stand against in the world and in your life or against you today? He is not strong enough to stand against resistance. Resistance. When he tries to tempt when he tries to terrorize, when he tries to manipulate you, resist. Just resist. Because Yaakov says in James chapter 4, verse 7, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. He will run away when he knows he can't get a foothold, when he knows he can't turn your thinking. When he knows he doesn't have the influence he wants to have over you, he will flee. Now, he will come back. He will look for a more opportune time, as we saw him do when he tempted Jesus. But resist. Just resist. And at this point in the Revelation, 
we see that Satan is about to lose what influence he currently has. The phrase, throw down. He was thrown down. Verse 9, the dragon was thrown down. Verse 8, they were not strong enough. There was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. That phrase, throw down, it's used five times by John. Which makes me wonder if it's not grace that throws the devil down ultimately. Because five is the number of grace in the Bible. Five times John says, throw down, throw down, throw down. The word is ablethe. It's a passive form of the word balo, which is great for remembering because throw down, like throwing, like spiking a football, Satan's going to be thrown down. Balo, like a ball. The word balo means to throw down, but a blethe in the passive form means he's thrown down and he can't do a thing about it. He doesn't have the power to even push back or stop. And understand that in the scriptures, first we see Satan fall, now we see him thrown. It's not what he wants, but it's what is going to happen. By the way, something else about this word throw down from balo, a blethe, diabolos. Diabolo is the conjunction in the Greek. Dia, which means through, and balo, which means to throw. So diabolos is to throw through, and it's a phrase that, that depicts falsely accusing, throwing through someone. But even inherent is in his name is the idea of the balo of being thrown. He's going to be thrown down. He's thrown down four times in the Bible. Note this, four times. First, from glory to profanity, which maybe is more of a fall, as I said, than it is a throwdown. He falls from glory into profanity. Secondly, he will be thrown down, as we read here, from heavenly access to earthly confinement in Revelation 12. And yes, I believe this is happening right here at the midpoint of the tribulation. When Satan finally loses his all-access pass to heaven. That's the second throwdown. The third, he will be thrown from earth into the abyss. Revelation 20 will tell us. And then finally and ultimately, he is released from the abyss for a short time, mounts another rebellion, is immediately put down and thrown, number four, into the lake of fire. And those are the four put-downs of the devil in the scriptures. Now, I want to go a little further with this. Let's turn back to two ancient prophecies to consider how this throwing down began in the first place. If you'll turn to Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Those are the two passages. Those are key passages when studying the devil, when seeking to understand who Satan is and how he functions, and really, what is his history? What happened? Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. Those are two to keep in mind if you ever ask questions about the devil or you want to understand or study him further. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. We'll start in Isaiah 14. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. Now understand going into this that this is a taunt against the king of Babylon it is a prophetic taunt where the Lord speaking through Isaiah says taunt the king of Babylon. And so at first he's talking about the oppression of the king of Babylon. What an evil guy he is and how he's striking the peoples and what he's doing. But we get to a certain point where you start to realize what he's talking about in this taunt is not the king of Babylon, but the spirit behind the king of Babylon who is the devil. Who is Satan? Well, how do we know that? Because the language he uses in this taunt gets much, much bigger than a human being. And it becomes very clear. And that's where we pick it up in verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. That is Halel ben Shachar. If you're reading a King James translation, you'll see the word Lucifer. Lucifer is just the Latin form of the Hebrew Halel ben Shakar, and it means light bearer. If your Bible says, as mine does, star of the morning or son of the dawn, no, there's only one morning star, and that is Jesus Christ. He is not the morning star. He's just called a light bearer. He, he's a light bearer. He is not the light. 
He just bore the light. At a time in ancient past, he was one who bore the light. Hey, you can be a light bearer today. You can be one who who bears or reflects the glory of God. And that's a good way to think about it. When Satan was created, when he was Halel ben Shachar, he was the light bearer. So he was a shining one, if you will. But not the morning star. That's Jesus Christ. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, sun of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. You who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. Stars there, probably a reference to angels. And I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. So here is this light bearer, this shining one, this reflector of the glory of God. As we'll find out in Ezekiel, a high cherubim, probably a worship leader, if not the worship leader in heaven. And so he's cut down because he he wants to rise up. Turn over to Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel 28, where we see a similar situation. In Ezekiel 28, now we see a taunt against the king of Tyre. Tyre is Lebanon today, so north of Israel. And in this kingdom of Tyre was also a wicked king, but he's satanically driven. And once again, as you read through this taunt, you come to a certain place where you realize, wow, this is not about a man. This is much bigger than a man. This has to be Satan himself. Pick it up, Ezekiel 28 and verse 12. Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Stop right there. Who was in Eden that we know of? Well, there was Adam and Eve and the serpent. Right? Was the king of Tyre in Eden? Well, he's just speaking metaphorically and allegorically. Yes, he's painting a picture of the king of Tyre, but he's talking to one who was present in Eden, which would have to be the devil. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald. What what it's describing here is beauty, unparalleled color. That this Satan would have been as, as this light bearer, stunning. That the light, the colors of the prism here, right? Just beautiful and shining. And the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. And the word settings and sockets, you could also translate pipes and timbrels, or maybe more colloquially, colloquially, tambourines and flutes. The description here is of this beautiful, shining one, awesome to look at, who inhabited music, who was music in and of himself, that music flowed from him. And so we often can say, and you've heard probably said, that Satan was a heavenly worship leader. That's why worship can be a sticky place in the church and a place where there can be contention, Rivalry and issues and problems and, and I'm counseling with Rachel through it all right now. It's okay. We're going to get through it. We've got a great worship team. You know why? Because they all recognize who God is and that they are not Him. Anyway, we have this divine worship leader, this, this heavenly one. You were the anointed cherub who covers And I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. Which is why I said his first fall is from glory to the profane. To profanity. 
I've cast you from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub. So Satan, the devil, described in all this way, the one who was in Eden was at one time among the cherubim. Then he himself was a cherub. He says, I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Verse 17, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to where? The ground. To the earth. Satan's fall to earth. I put you before kings that they may see you. By the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you, and I have turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you, and have become, and you have become terrified, and you will cease to be forever. And Revelation chapter 20, verse 10 tells us of that moment when cast into the lake of fire, Satan will cease to be forever. That is, he will never again have any of the influence that he currently has. What is apparent when you read both of these prophecies, and, and for time's sake we won't go any further into the two of them, but these are two places to look at and to study and to consider on your own time. But we understand through these prophecies Satan has already fallen once from glory to profanity. That he lost his original position, his covering guardian cherubship in heaven, lost that position and has been thrown down. And the world then, from the very beginning all the way back to Eden, the world has been His domicile and His dominion. Which again is why we see the evil and wickedness and darkness that we see in the world around us. He is the ruler of this world. Remember, Jesus called Him that twice. The ruler of this world. Paul called Him the God of this world. And back in Revelation chapter 12, go ahead and go back there now. At the midpoint of the tribulation, this heavenly war takes place. While tribulation is taking place on the planet, suddenly this war breaks out in heaven and it has earthly consequence to it. As the devil and his angels are finally thrown down, defeated, booted, kicked out, revoked from all access to heaven whatsoever, verse 9, continuing the great dragon who was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth. And his angels were thrown down with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who has been thrown down, he who accuses them, uh, he has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. I heard a loud voice. Loud voice is megalophonin, a megaphone. I heard a megaphone voice go booming from heaven with shouts of praise. Who is the megaphone voice? I suggest to you it's the church. And the reason I say that is because this megaphone voice says the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. The accuser of our brethren. A megaphone voice, this booms. And I would imagine that all the inhabitants of heaven will have a massive party, a massive cheer, a wonderful thrill at the moment that Satan is finally revoked from access to heaven. Can you just imagine, even right now, how tedious, how tiresome, how repetitive and droning the disparaging accusations of the devil. He's always there. Lord, did you see him? Lord, look at her. Hey, God, have you paying attention to that guy? You know what he's doing over there? And if you're one of the angels or one of the, one of the Old Testament saints, if you're up there in heaven right now, you're going, <laughs> how long do we have to listen to this putrid presence? Why do we have to put up with this, this constant drone of blah, blah, blah? The tenacious tattletale is kicked out. Bye-bye. And so a megaphone voice booms out. Now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God have come. The authority of Christ. There's nothing getting in the way. This is wonderful. Verse 11. And they overcame Him. They overcame Him. Who? Who overcame Him? The immediate 
explanation here, or at least the immediate indication, is these are overcomers from the tribulation. It would be the 144,000. It would be all believing Israel, along with those saints, those Gentiles who have come to faith in Jesus during the tribulation. They're overcoming Him. They have overcome Him. But this verse, verse 11, has far-reaching implications Not just for that time, but for the church, past, present, future, and here this morning. Listen to it. They overcame Him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. And this verse is the most practical response to any attack of Satan that is in the entire passage. This is how you do it. Here is how you overcome him. You want to throw down the devil from your life? You want him out of the picture? It starts with the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. And John has already written of this blood three times in the Revelation. Revelation 1.5 To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And He has made us to be a kingdom, priest to His God and Father. To Him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. His blood did it. The blood of the Lamb. Uh, Revelation 5.9 You were slain and purchased for God with your blood. Men from every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. Revelation 7.14 Speaking of those tribulation saints, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the little Lamb. The blood of the Lamb, the blood of the Lamb, the blood of the Lamb. But what does this mean? Don't religiousize it. This has profound practical consequence for us. There is a a deeply significant world-ignoring reality when it comes to the blood. And that is that sin against an eternal God has eternal consequence. Our, Our world doesn't get this. Sin against an eternal God has eternal consequence. But God who knows this, who created our life blood, the blood that flows in each of us here this morning, He did so so that we could understand the reach of His love. That the blood shows us the love. We read in Romans 5.8, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's still, I read that and it blows my mind every single time. While I was sinning, Jesus was on the cross. While I was in abject rebellion, the blood was flowing out of the Christ. While I was rejecting Him, when I didn't know Him, when I didn't care about Him, when I hadn't even chosen to walk with Him, He was saying, Father, forgive Him. He doesn't know what He's doing. While we were yet sinners, He died. Much more than Paul says, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. Only the blood of Jesus. Only the precious blood of Christ, of the eternally perfect Christ, can satisfy God's wrath against us. Nothing else can satisfy the wrath of God. That's why it's only through Jesus that a person can be saved. You can try to be you know, a good Hindu. You can follow the teachings of Buddha and sit around in the lotus position all day long. You can try to, do, to hold the five pillars of Islam. You can try to be a good Mormon and keep all of the tenets of the faith and show yourself to be a good person, but it is only the blood that justifies. Only the blood that makes you right before God. You must be covered with the blood of the little lamb slain. And only if you are covered by the blood can you even begin to overcome. But I promise you, nobody will overcome the evil one without the blood of Jesus. Secondly, and the word of their testimony. Now, how does that work? If you're taking notes, jot this down. The word of your testimony silences the accusations of the enemy. The word of your testimony silences the accusations of the enemy. He's up there and he's saying, MC is doing this and MC is doing that and MC is doing this. And you know what MC is doing? Hey, have you heard about Jesus? Let me tell you what Jesus has done to me. 
Let me tell you who Jesus is in my life. And that testimony is overcoming those foolish, stupid accusations day in and day out. Even as the blood of Christ has covered my my brother MC, so the word of his testimony doesn't make him righteous. He's just declaring what's happened. He's just sharing the truth. Jesus has changed me. Try it sometime. Just try this. When you're riding in the shame of some past sin, something that you just can't get out of your mind, something the devil loves to remind you of time and time again, if you're on the same old guilt trip, and Satan is your personal tour guide, get off the bus and testify what Jesus has done in you and watch Satan's tires go flat. When you stop and recognize the sweetness of Jesus in your life, and the forgiveness of Christ and the justification of His blood, and you start to testify those things, you can be all alone and you can just speak out what Jesus has done in you and for you. Watch the guilt melt away. And by the way, with this, understand with the testimony, the word of our testimony, the potency of your testimony is not the depravity of your life before. And what I mean by that is there are some Christians who, who they, they have a great testimony. Yeah, I was on Skid Row, man, for years. Just drunk out of my mind. Let me tell you what it was like. I was, you know, bottle after bottle. And and the testimony becomes about the depravity. That's not your testimony. Your testimony is the salvation. It's who Jesus is in you. It's how Jesus has wonderfully changed you. It's the life that, well, Paul said it this way. I've been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself up for me. That's my testimony. Jesus in me now, not the idiot Rick then. You don't need that story. And sometimes people will wallow in old sin as they're telling their testimony. Like I've told you before, I love the story of the nine-year-old girl who walked up to the front on a Sunday morning, hung her head and said, for years I wandered deep in sin. (laughs) The sin wandering is not the thing. The salvation of the Lord, that's the thing. Jesus in me now, how Jesus has changed my life for the good and for eternity now. The blood of the Lamb. The word of my testimony that silences the accusations of the enemy. And number three, number three, says they did not love their life even when faced with death. So here's the deal. The love of my life is not my life. The love of my life is not my life. Cheryl and I were just talking about this last night. That from time to time we'll have conversation with someone who is maybe really sick or wondering if how long they're going to last, feeling like death is imminent. And I, I see two kinds of people in that scenario. I have seen two kinds of people. I, I've seen those who are terrified. Just terrified. Why? Because they love their life. And I've seen those who are at total peace. You know why? Because they did not love their life even when faced with death. The love of your life is not your life. See, to say, I I do not love my life even when faced with death is an absolutely insane, crazy statement without Jesus. Outside of Christ, it's kind of nutty to say, ah, whatever, bring it on, I'm not afraid of death. You should be. Without Jesus. But Paul said, Philippians 1.21, for me... To live is Christ, the word of my testimony. To die is gain. To die is gain. Do you realize how liberating it is to live that way? To be able to say, my future is secured by the blood of Christ. My past is silenced by the word of my testimony. My present is set free from the very fear of death because Jesus, not my life, Jesus is the love of my life. I don't love my life even when faced with death because I love Jesus and He is my life. Are you so in love with your life that you just want it to go on and on the way that it is? Maybe you're in a good season. Spring's coming. 
I'm financially comfortable. Everything seems to be going really well. Yeah, I'd like a few more years. Give it time. (laughs) Because I promise you the day is coming when you will either despair of this life or in Christ you'll say, Lord, I wish you would come today. And I hear that a lot around here. Especially when we've had a bad week. Couldn't he just come today? Today would be the best day for the rapture ever. Because I don't want next week to look like, you know, hey, I'm not concerned about this life. We live in this life for Christ. Because Christ is our life. But to die is gain. And so we don't worry about these things. Verse 12, for this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. He's gone. He's out. The accuser, Satan, he's out of here. We don't have to hear any more of his drivel. Praise the Lord. Now we can start to, in heaven, start to experience the kingdom without this naysayer. Woe to the earth and the sea. Because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. The heavenly throwdown has disastrous results for the earth. Satan comes down, crashing into the planet with raging wrath. He is literally beside himself. And you know what? I think this may be right here the first time, though I'm sure the devil has read it because he is a student of Scripture. This may be the first time that he really gets it. Gets what? He's out of time. He is literally out of time. This will not go on and on. He can't continue doing what he's always done. His judgment is imminent. He is out of time. And let me ask you this morning, do you know the time? Are you aware of the time? And don't give the devil the time of day. Not in your life. Rather, walk in the love of Christ. As Paul said, Romans 13.10, Do this, knowing the time that is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Apparently, Satan right now doesn't really know the time, and he won't until he and his angels are thrown down, and then he'll go ballistic. Absolutely nuts. And we're going to look at that on Wednesday night. But I want you to hear something. And listen closely, because this, I think, is the whole point of today's teaching. Why did the devil fall in the first place? Why did the devil fall in the first place? I'll read it to you again. Isaiah 14, verse 13. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Watch this. I will make myself like the Most High. I will make myself like the Most High. You want to know why Satan fell? Because he wanted to be like God. The Bible doesn't even say he tried to overthrow God. It just says he looked up, perhaps leading a great heavenly worship service there in heaven, he looked up at God and he wanted to be looked up to like God. And it's the most subtle of all temptation and we face it in our own lives all the time. Hillel ben Shachar, Lucifer, light bearer, he wanted to be the light. The anointed heavenly worship leader just wanted himself to be worshipped like God. By contrast, do you know what the archangel Michael's name means? Michael. Who is like God? No one. No one is like God. No one can be like God. But the light bearer wanted to be like God. What was his first temptation to Eve? That she could be like God. If you eat this, your eyes will be open and you will know good from evil and you will be like God. His temptation was his temptation. Do you know what I mean? The temptation for Eve 
was the devil's own temptation for himself. And that same temptation is right here this morning. Do you ever say, Lord, I just want to be like you? Do you ever think, God is loved. I want to be loved like that. God is worshipped. Well, I don't, I don't need to be worshipped, but I like to be admired. God is powerful. <laughs> I wouldn't mind a little strength. God is righteous. Well, I'd like to be, I'd like to be right too. And that's where we get it all wrong. You want to be like God? Do you want to really be godly, godlike in all your behavior? Okay. Then you'll be despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their face, you will be despised and not esteemed. Isaiah 53, verse 3. Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He Himself carried, and we ourselves, we esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Satan failed to understand who God is. I want to be like God. No, Satan wanted to be like what he thought God was. But he did not understand. He didn't understand what God did. How far God was willing to go. He did not understand what it means when the Bible says God is love. You want to be like God? You want to be godly? Be like Jesus. Throw down the old self. In favor of living for Him. In Philippians 2.5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, That's what it is to be godly. You want to be like God? Keep your eyes on Jesus. Throw down whatever is in mind or heart that would keep you from elevating and following Jesus Christ.